that's a challenging reading from Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Sardis. What name do they have? What reputation do they have? It might be good in the sight of others, but what does Christ think? What does God think of the church? What name do we have? What name do people have? What reputation do we have? Graham Keith, the treasurer of the Billy Graham Association and Billy Graham's lifelong friend, was once in a lift with Billy Graham when another man recognised him and he says, you're Billy Graham, aren't you? And he says, yes. Well, the man said, you're a truly great man. And he praised him. And he says, no, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. Billy Graham had a good reputation. He was humble, but he wasn't concerned with building a reputation, a name for himself. Wherever he could, he would give the glory to God. But still, he had a good name. He was a great evangelist. What name do we have? What do people think of when they think of us? What name do we have individually? And what name do we have as a church, as a fellowship? It's been said that our name or our reputation is built upon what you are seen to do in the public spotlight. Our, our reputation is based upon what is seen in the public's spotlight. But our character is based upon what we were like in private, out of the public spotlight. Some people love getting a, a good reputation and they let lots of people know how good they are. They love doing their good works. Jesus talked about the Pharisees doing good works so that everyone could see. And yet, when there weren't people looking, they weren't really doing good works. Their real character came out. Jesus said, Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father who sees everything will reward you. That means, at times, not letting people find out the things that you do, the little things that you do. A lot of people, you probably know some who, the kind of people who, if they do a little bit of good, they keep talking about it for ages afterwards and they drop it into all kinds of conversations. Like they might say, you know, last week when I was way into Belfast, you know, to help out at the homeless centre, I went and and they're, they're telling you nothing really other than they did some charitable work. The kind of stories where people are always letting you know what good they've done. Others tell you how good they are without giving any examples of of the good that they have actually done at all. 
they often say, you know, I would never do wrong to someone, to anyone. I'm not that kind of person. I would never hurt anyone. I always go out of my way to help people. I'm not like those others who don't help people at all. They're building their own reputation. They're telling you what they're like, but you're not seeing it. What often comes across is that that they're more focused on their words and their works don't always back it up. And yet other people have a false piety. They know that Jesus says, don't do your works in public, but do them in private so that the Father will see. And so they don't want to be seen to be doing things in public, to get public applause. So they do them in a way which looks as though they're doing them in private, but they're just public enough for people to notice. The heart is deceitful above all things. Sin creeps in, even when we think we're doing good, it, it, it creeps in. And, and others still put up lots of photos on Facebook of all that they do. It can be their social activities, it can be their charitable activities, their volunteering. And sometimes it seems as though it's they're not so much focused on the charity that they're working with that they just want themselves to be seen again and again. In fact, on social media there's far too much posing. People making themselves look good, posing for a photograph, putting up the best photograph they have. Even get celebrities trying to take down any photos of them that that aren't showing them at their absolute best. People are looking to try and get the best reputation they can, the best name that they can. And yet, how many people put up a false image or a false reputation on social media? It's not real. They only put up the best comments. They're only putting up comments sometimes to impress others. It's not about who they are. It's about the impression that they can make. Their photos are photoshopped. Social media often isn't about reality. It's about fake image. It's about trying to get a name for yourself. It's about trying to keep up with others. And as a result, as one person described it, these picture-perfect photographs, perfect lifestyles, perfect travels, perfect homes, perfect meals, and very importantly, perfect bodies, these these things are, are, are like a, a bondage that they're a heavy weight on people to try and keep up with others. They continued, social media, selfies, sharing and instant enhancing is undoubtedly feeding modern adolescent narcissism. And while self-image has always been dependent to some extent upon peer approval, today's very public showcasing of self has made that approval critical to self-esteem and sadly emotional health. In other words, People are suffering mental health illness because of the try the need to try and keep up having a good reputation on social media. It's damaging their mental health. It's damaging their bodies. Trying to keep up a good name with other people, especially for young people. And yet... If you know truly godly people, 
they're not concerned about what others think. They don't talk about what they've done. They don't boast about how much they've volunteered or what they've done to help others. They aren't interested in whether they've got a good reputation or not in the eyes of others. They're more concerned about what God thinks of them. They aren't upset if they don't get the recognition that they deserve because that's not what they're focused on. When Jesus says, give your gifts in private and your Father who sees everything will reward you, he didn't mean that we shouldn't do things in public, but that we shouldn't be seeking public approval. We should be more concerned with what God sees privately. Of course, there's times when we are concerned about God's reputation, God's name, and what people think of us if we're taking the name of Christ upon us affects what they think of God. We try to ensure that we don't get a bad reputation so that God doesn't get a bad reputation. That's what the Apostle Paul had such a concern for at the start of the book of Romans. He was aware that some people thought that he's he's delaying coming to Rome. Why hasn't he come and visited us? He seems to be having going all kinds of excuses to have to go in all different kinds of places. Maybe it's because he doesn't actually think the gospel will work in the capital city of the empire. Maybe the gospel is only good enough to convince the peasants in the countryside, but he's afraid to come here where the elite will be able to really examine his gospel and it won't be able to convince anybody here. Maybe maybe the gospel isn't really that good after all. So Paul addresses his poor reputation, his tarnished name, head on at the start of his letter in the Rome, to Romans. He says, Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith in him has been talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his Son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so that I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I have seen amongst other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilised world and in the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome too, to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. So Paul is concerned about his reputation, not because of himself, but because of how it impacts the gospel. And we should be concerned about that 
as well. Paul defended his own reputation to the Corinthians and to the Galatians. At times he was under attack, but he wasn't concerned about himself. He was concerned about the name of God, the glory of God. We ought to seek a good reputation. A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Proverbs 22 tells us, Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver and gold. It's good to have a good reputation, a good name. But it's not good to chase after one falsely. I know of one man who was very humble, never sought the limelight. And just quietly got on with his work, treated people really well. And when he died, some people expected him to have a reasonably quiet, small funeral. But one person, a close relative, was astounded at how many people turned out. One of the biggest funeral they had seen, including many significant people in the community. He had a good character, but he wasn't well known. He wasn't making much of his character. He was looking for a good name. He was just more concerned about doing good. We should have that Proverbs 22 approach. But that humility that Jesus talks of in Matthew as well, not seeking to do our good before others to get the limelight, but doing good before God. With all of that in mind, we come now to the the church in Sardis. A church with a good name? Sadly, no. This church in Sardis is the fifth of the churches in the the circuit where John's letter of Revelation will be taken around uh, eastern Turkey. It will be taken from Patmos in the bottom of the screen, the island where John was um, exiled, right through and around. And Sardis is uh, the third last church, the fifth of the seven churches that is written to. And Jesus says, And to the angel, or the pastor, the messenger of God's word, of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. What a thing for the Lord to say about a church. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. This church thinks highly of itself. It has a good reputation and it rests on that. But Jesus says that's a false reputation. The reality is very different. Someone once said that if the Holy Spirit were between one week and the next Sunday, you were going to church one Sunday, and if the Holy Spirit had left the church, would anybody notice? Sadly, in this church, and sometimes too many churches, the Holy Spirit has left. The Holy Spirit has been squeezed out. 
people have been seeking worldliness rather than godliness. And so they're not following the Lord. They're not walking in the Spirit. And sometimes people don't notice. Sometimes a church can look good outwardly. It can have a a great worship team, a lot of lively music, and it can have a lot of things on its program, a lot of projects going on. It might even have it be a church which has a, a long heritage that's been going for 100, 200 years. It might be able to point to a revival in the past. It might be able to point to, to great preachers. And yet we must be careful that we're not resting on our laurels, that we're not resting on reputation, but that we're actually walking with the Lord. Sean Lucas wrote, It would only take a generation for a church to show signs of decay. Perhaps a good pastoral choice or poor pastoral choice, get in the wrong pastor, things can go quickly downhill. A failure to continue to preach God's word faithfully, adopting liberal trends, not being faithful to God's word. A transition in the church's understanding of mission. Sometimes churches... Instead of seeing mission as, as being caring for, for people and, and pastoring people and sharing the gospel with people, they just focus on good works and the gospel gets squeezed out. Pastoral ministry gets squeezed out. Bible studies. Do you know some churches don't have time for Bible studies? an inability to see and adapt to the neighbourhood around them. It's enough to cause us as pastors to get on our knees and to beg God to continue to grant mercy to our congregations and to grant them mercy in the generations after us, he writes. Justin Taylor writes that it only takes one generation for a church to die. He writes that don't forget Don Carson's perspective perceptive analysis and warning. Don Carson writes, in a fair bit of Western evangelicalism, there is a worrying tendency to focus on the the periphery, not the core things of the faith, but the things on the periphery. He writes that his colleague, Dr. Paul Hebert, springs from Mennonite stock. He's, He's brought up from the Mennonite churches. And... Dr. Paul Hebert, who is an expert in mission, analyzes his heritage in a fashion that he himself would acknowledge as something of a, it's a bit of a simplistic character, but it's useful nevertheless, Carson writes. Hebert says of his own church, of his own denomination, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held as well that there were certain social, economic and political entailments or good works that that flow from it. The next generation assumed the gospel but identified with the good works. And the following generation denied the gospel. The good works became everything. Even in just a couple of generations a whole denomination can slip from being gospel focused to being liberal and good works focused. Assuming this sort of scheme for evangelicalism 
Carson writes, one suspects that large swathes of the movement of evangelicalism are lodged in the second step with some drifting toward the third. The church in Sardis was in the third step. They had once held on to the gospel, then assumed the gospel and then had denied the gospel. They weren't living as they ought to. They may have not denied it in theory and doctrine, but they denied it in practice. Some churches hold to a statement of faith which is biblical, but they're not living by it. Other churches actually deny central gospel truths altogether. Being dead spiritually can happen to, to churches of all denominations, all theological persuasions, in a sense, all variations of, of, of Christianity. And so you end up with churches that are dead and look dead, and others that are dead spiritually, but even though they look alive. We need to be careful, not about what people say, what how we look to others, but what does God think of us? Paul says that in the last days there will be people who will be very ungodly and above some he says they will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. A lot of people take the name of Christ but they don't have the spirit within. They don't have the power of the spirit within. That's what Paul's talking about. They're trying to do good works, but they don't have the power of the Spirit to really enable them to do the truly good works that come from those who are Christ's people, following him. Our godliness is not measured by the impression that we can make on others, but it's what God thinks of us when no one sees And yet, Jesus graciously warns the church to wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. It's interesting that the city of Sardis believed that it was an impregnable city. There were cliffs on so many sides of it that people couldn't come over those cliffs. We're we're not going to be attacked from that direction. So they weren't watching, they weren't on guard. And yet they've been captured twice because of that lack of being on guard And the wording to wake up is, as Leon Morris says, it's not simply just a one-off thing that you do. It's, It's a continuing activity. It's a continuous thing. Be watchful is the way he, he would translate it. We have to be continually watchful, on guard, awake. We need to have spiritual vigilance against lethargy on the one hand and against doctrinal error on the other and many other things too possibly we need to encourage each other to do good and to love the Lord to be involved in the body of Christ to have a close devotional walk with God and to be involved in 
serving others, others through church, using their gifts as they can to serve the body of Christ. There are many ways in which a church can wander, can slip from being Christ-centered. Sometimes worship music can look as though it's about God, but it can be about us. A lot of the modern worship music that's coming out now actually has very little about salvation. A lot of songs about how good God is, how powerful he is, but not about sin, about the cross, about God's grace and mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. The cross can be missing from so much worship music. Even when the cross is there, there can be the focus on the music itself. A number of people have written that it was the 1905 revival sometime around then in Wales. The Welsh they, they loved singing God's praises. And that revival, there were so many churches where people were singing God's praises, listening to God's word, people being brought close to God. But after a while, they loved the sound of their own voices. And after a while, they weren't singing praises to God. They were singing praises to themselves. Look how great our songs are, our, our choirs are. And singing killed the Welsh revival some people argue we need to be careful that we don't make an idol out of the good things we need to turn back, repent, turn back to the gospel truths, to gospel actions that they once had, Jesus tells us, church how terrible it would be for Jesus to come against us as he says to this church here and yet, there are a faithful remnant within the church. There's a faithful remnant of people within the church at Sardis. The church might be dead as a whole, but as Jesus says, there are some people, some names within the church. The ESV translate this, translates this more literally, and it's helpful to see that on the one hand, the church is seeking a name for itself, which isn't good. But there are a few names within the church, a few people. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The first thing we see here is that in contrast to the general state of the church, there are some individuals who are faithful. And the imagery here is that wearing white symbolizes being righteous, being worthy before God. In contrast to wearing soiled, dirty clothes, which symbolizes sin before God as well. How can someone be worthy? Well, only by receiving the worthiness of Christ. Paul writes in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, or by works of law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Because we are sinful, that's our nature, our fallen nature. When we try and do the good God wants us to do, we end up in some way or another, either a little or a lot, we end up sinning. 
when we try and fulfill the law, we end up falling short of the glory of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the Old Testament prophesies and testifies of Jesus. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness of God comes by faith. Many people are trying to do things in order to be righteous before God. That won't work, Paul says in Romans 3.20. We're already unrighteous. But we can have a righteousness given to us, imputed to us, by faith. The word imputed is a technical word, but it simply means that it's not a righteousness that inherently belongs to us because we are righteous. It's a righteousness of Christ which is put to our account. And we receive that righteousness simply by faith. Jesus says in Revelation 3.5 The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. To those who persevere in holiness, in faithfulness, in living for Christ, in following him before all else, above all else, to those who are victorious, to those who overcome, they will be seen to be those who have white garments. It's not that they clean up their garments and then overcome in themselves. They receive these white garments and overcome in Christ. And it's not as though their overcoming will result in them being given white garments. Their overcoming is a result of them having white garments in Christ. Our ability to overcome does not make us right with God. Our ability to overcome is a result of having been made right with God through faith in Jesus. Bale says that the promise I will not erase his name contains no inference that the names of the genuinely saved might for some reason be erased, but rather it is an assurance that they will not be erased. Later in Revelation we read, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is a terrible judgment ahead for those who do not serve God, for those who do not have the works of righteousness that we need in order to be judged right before God. There are two ways to to be judged right before God one by deserving it one by living under law relating to God by how we respond to his law for all of us we're going to fail we've all sinned every one of us that way will not result in us being justified Romans 3.20 the other way is that we give up on trying to deserve a good reputation ourselves before God And we trust instead on Christ's obedience, his reputation, his righteousness, 
which we receive by faith as a gift. If we're trying to gain our own righteousness, it's a losing game. But if we simply accept the righteousness of God through faith in Christ as a gift, we are righteous before God and he gives us the ability to do righteous works, the fruit of the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. And yet, in verse 2, the works of those in the church were not complete, were not fulfilled. They were not fulfilling what they ought to do before God. In Romans 13, 8, Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The Ten Commandments has often been summarized as love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And those two have even been summarized further as simply love your neighbour as yourself. Because if you're loving your neighbour it's because you love God. And yet instead of fulfilling that command church in Sardis their works are not complete their works are not fulfilled they have not fulfilled the works that God expects of them if they are Christ's people truly his followers and yet God is not simply saying there's a judgment coming and you're doomed what he's saying to them is turn in his grace and his mercy and his love for them. He's saying, turn. He's given them advance warning. He's saying, you're not where you ought to be. Turn back. This is a message of grace. This is a message of gospel warning. That people will turn back to God. And Jesus promises the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The focus on the name appears repeatedly to this church in Sardis. They're concerned about their name in the community, in the city. They have a good reputation amongst others but not before God. And yet there are a few names, a few people who are still faithful to God. And those who are faithful, their name will not be blotted out of the book of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We can only be faithful to God because of what Christ has already done. Because he has already been faithful to the Father. Peter tells us he committed no sin. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was faithful to the Father. And if we are trusting in him if we are in Christ, if we are his followers, his people, then we have his faithfulness to our account as well. And we are enabled by his spirit to be faithful. We're no longer under the control of sin. 
we are now able in the power of the Spirit to do the good works that please God. What name do we have as a church? What name do we have as individuals? Are we taking the name of Christ? Are we calling ourselves Christians? Are we taking that name in vain? Hopefully not, but we must examine ourselves. If you haven't trusted in Christ before, if you want his name, if you want your name to be written in the, in the Lamb's Book of Life, then simply trust in him for forgiveness. Just turn to him and ask, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The cross has provided all the forgiveness that we need. Jesus paid the price for sin on the cross. We just need to draw upon that. To ask God to apply that to our lives by his grace. And he clothes us with white garments spiritually. Our sins used to be a scarlet, red as scarlet, deep as scarlet. But now they are washed as white as snow when we come to faith in Christ. We need Jesus. We need his righteousness. We need his spirit, the Holy Spirit. We need his faithfulness. If we don't have it, if we don't have it as much as we want, well, let's turn back to him. Let's ask that the spirit would revive us, that he would empower us. Revival is where, well, we've got a book in the Lending Library called Revival. A people saturated with God. That's what revival is. Where people become saturated with God. The Holy Spirit comes in power. You don't need to cajole people to come to church, to, to listen, to read. The Spirit moves and believers are enlivened. What was dead is made alive. People who haven't trusted in Jesus are come under conviction of sin. The Spirit works powerfully. Let's pray that even though we're hopefully not in the same situation as the church in Sardis, that nevertheless that the Spirit will come and empower us and enliven us, that we will draw closer to the Lord, that that revival power will spread out across churches, across into our community, into our land, and that people will come to faith in Christ that people will give much glory to Christ and that Christ's name, that God's name will be honoured. Let's look for revival in our churches, in our lives, in our land. Let's pray for it. Revival always starts with prayer. Pray for it yourself. Pray for it at the church prayer meeting. Let's pray that the Lord would revive us Personally, we can have a, a spiritual revival in our own lives, even regardless of what's happening around us. But let's pray that the Lord would revive us as a church too, that he would revive our community, our land. Let's not worry too much about what people think of us. Let's, worry about, let's be concerned about what the Lord thinks of us. And let's be concerned about his name and his reputation too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, that you're a gracious God. 
You have let us know what our spiritual state is. You have provided the solution in the cross for us to become righteous through faith in Christ. And when churches are losing their way, you come to them and you warn them. Lord, help us to heed those small voices of warning, even these large voices of warning that we read in your word. Help us to continually keep turning back to you in the little areas and as well as the large ones. But Lord, we pray that you revive us. Come to us, Lord, in reviving power. Revive us individually. Revive us together. Revive your people. Revive this land, Lord. Draw people to yourself. Be merciful. Be gracious. Give us a foretaste of heaven. Lord, help us to see your power, your glory. For your name's sake. Amen.